Well, if you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to Daniel chapter 5 as we now are plowing our way through this Old Testament prophet. You'll find Daniel in your Old Testament after Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. In the first four chapters, we heard about God's dealings with Nebuchadnezzar and, of course, Daniel and his friends. Last week we saw how God humbled a very proud king and God made him know a phrase that's reiterated again and again in chapter 4. If, if in the writing of it uh, they had modern type, uh, they might have uh, all capitalized and bolded and underlined the phrase, the most high God is sovereign in the kingdoms of men and he gives them. To whomever he wills. Well, that's the refrain of chapter 4. Now at chapter 5, we uh, encounter the very sudden appearance of King Belshazzar. And by the end of the chapter, just as suddenly, he is killed. And the Babylonian kingdom is no more. What a comfort this chapter then would have been to the people of God in exile under a persecuting and oppressive um, regime. The prophecy of Daniel chapter 2 is fulfilled here. Nations rise and nations fall. Kings come and kings go, but God remains the sovereign king of heaven above and on the earth below. That would have been such a comfort to God's people uh, in their day, and it ought to be in ours. So let me invite you to consider then uh, Daniel chapter 5. We'll read the whole of it. And then we'll consider it together. Let me invite you then to give your attention to the reading of God's holy and inspired word. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his Wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote, then the king's color changed, and his thoughts alarmed him, his limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. 
Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed, and his color changed, and his lords were perplexed. The queen, or queen mother, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall, and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father, the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers, because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king my father brought from Judah. I have heard of you that the spirit of the gods is in you and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation but they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself. And give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations and languages trembled and feared before him whom he would. He killed, and whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up, and whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up, and his spirit was hardened, so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne, and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind, and his mind was made like that of a beast, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. But you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. And the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives and your concubines, have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, 
of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways, you have not honored. Then from his presence the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed, and this is the writing that was inscribed, Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command. And Daniel was clothed with purple, a chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar the Chaldean king was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Amen. This is God's word. May he write it on our hearts. Let's look to him in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we pray tonight that you would show us again your glory. Help us to know who you really are. And we pray that you would teach us to know who we are in your eyes. And lift Jesus before us. We ask all of this in his name. Amen. On December 12, 1984, a dense fog shrouded a highway south of London, Highway M25. The hazard warning lights, because it's always foggy over there, were on, but most drivers ignored the signs. At 6.15 in the morning, a truck carrying huge rolls of paper was involved in an accident, and within minutes, the road was engulfed in carnage. Dozens of Cars were wrecked as they drove into the fog and into the wreck. Ten people were killed. Police car, soon on the scene, had two policemen in it who ran back down the motorway to stop the oncoming traffic. They waved their arms. They shouted as loud as they could. But most drivers took no notice and raced on towards the disaster that awaited them. The Policemen then picked up traffic cones and flung them at the car windshields in a desperate attempt to warn drivers of their danger. One told how tears streamed down his face as car after car went by. And he waited for the sickening sound of impact as they hit the growing mass of wreckage farther down the road. The warnings of disaster went unheeded, and the people paid the price. And this story is a warning to us all that disaster awaits those who follow the path of Belshazzar. The disaster is to face God's judgment without the mercy that saves us. So tonight we need to think about this. It's a warning, but it also would have been, as I said at the beginning, very encouraging to the people of God. Even when their enemies mock and scorn, 
when their enemies ignore and oppress, God is paying attention. God knows, God sees, God acts in his own time and in his own way to judge his enemies. And so the exiled Israelites would have been strengthened in their oppression to keep believing in the God they served when they heard at the end of the story that once again, Daniel was promoted and this time Belshazzar was demoted. So we want to think about God's sovereignty in judgment tonight. The judgment of this king and of this nation. I want to do it under three headings. I want you to think about God's judgment in terms of its denial, its deservedness, and its decisiveness. Three things. In the first place, I want you to think about the judgment of God, which is denied. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, just a second. Verse 1 starts with a party. It doesn't start with judgment. Belshazzar throws a party. He invites a thousand. This is an extravagant party, but not unheard of by the wealthy kings of that day. A thousand of his nobles come. The wives are there. Concubines are there. It's a feast of wine, women, and probably song. Before the night is over, however... The king is dead and Persia rules. Now, listen, some secular historians have found the story of this judgment by God difficult to believe, impossible. Why? Because the Bible jumps right in from chapter 4 to 5, from Nebuchadnezzar to Belshazzar. From the early glories of Babylon to what the Bible says is the last king of Babylon. No introduction. No conclusion after the last words of the chapter. Who is this guy? And for centuries, secular historians couldn't find a Belshazzar in any ancient list of kings outside of the Bible. And to those who didn't believe the Bible, it seemed as if Belshazzar didn't exist for real. Therefore, they said, we're off the hook from believing in this fairy tale about God being sovereign over the kingdoms of men. God being sovereign over the judgment of nations and their kings. I mean, you can't believe the Bible's true. You can't believe it's authoritative. After all, it's inaccurate about the Babylonian Empire. I mean, this was the language of the unbelieving. All historians do agree that Nebuchadnezzar at his death was followed in quick succession by various rulers until Nabonidus became king. It was long thought that he was the last king. He's the last in many a list. He ruled from 555 to 539. Remember Nebuchadnezzar 605 took the Israelites captive into exile and then there were multiple exiles after that. Well, 555 to 539, Nabonidus reigns. When in 539, Persia takes over. That's how the lists go, but then... One of those wonderful providences of history in 1854, a discovery was made in southern Iraq of ancient inscriptions written at the command of Nabonidus. They contained a prayer for the long life and good health of Nabonidus and for his eldest son, Belshazzar. Nabonidus had a son, Belshazzar. In the last 10 years of Nabonidus' reign, Belshazzar was the crown prince and given charge of Babylon. 
Nabonidus evidently fell out of favor in Babylon. He wanted them to worship the moon god, and they wanted to worship Marduk, who was kind of their god from history. And it seems as though, for that reason or perhaps others, he left Babylon. He took his rule and reign to another part of the territory, but he left Belshazzar in Babylon to be second in command under him and king over the nation. And so that's why you get in your Bible here, don't be confused by it, the language of your father, Nebuchadnezzar. Well, that's just the language in that day of predecessor. It can refer to father. It can refer to grandfather. It can refer to great-grandfather. Your Old Testament doesn't ordinarily speak of people that way. It can even refer in royal dynasties to lines of predecessors who aren't even blood-related. And all that makes sense of the promise Belshazzar promises to Daniel when he says you'll be not, what, second, but you'll be third highest in the kingdom because Nabonidus is first, Belshazzar is second. Daniel would be made third. So once again, given time, the Bible is shown even by unbelieving historians to be true. And that's because it is true. Even if we don't have every particular detail agreed to by the historians. The point of all that is to say that lots of people go to great lengths to deny the truthfulness of these true stories. And it's so often because they don't want to deal. I mean, who of us does wants to deal with a God who rules and who judges kings and kingdoms and peoples? And that's not surprising. After all, the first doctrine ever denied in the Bible was the doctrine of judgment. Do you remember when God said to Adam and Eve, don't eat of this tree? And then Satan came to them and he said, what? You will not die. Has God really said? It was the doctrine of God promising death for disobedience that was denied. It's always been this way, friends. We don't like this doctrine. Though <laughs> we, uh, we, uh, we tend to wish it wasn't true. Our conscience testifies that it is. We, we even look at our own behavior and motives. And we sometimes excuse ourselves. And we sometimes accuse ourselves. We evaluate ourselves all the time by our own standards, and we judge ourselves for it. Are we so surprised that there is God's standard that we should be judged by? And we are actually, I would venture to guess, most of us anyway, all for judgment if it means that those truly bad tyrants in the history of the world and those truly wicked terrorists, whoever we think they are, whoever they are, we think it would be good if they got what they deserved. I mean, few would, though some do, few would defend Hitler or Saddam Hussein. We just don't want to believe that most people deserve judgment. We don't want to believe that all people deserve judgment. And we certainly don't want to believe that we deserve judgment. It's scary, it's frightening, and we want to think better of ourselves than that. But... My point is this, point number one, we cannot deny this. We have to deal with a holy God who evaluates his world and he comes to some assessment about it. 
who deals with injustice in his own way and in his own time. And so he does in this case. That's the first thing I want you to see. Now, the second I want you to see is that the judgment of God is deserved here. This, there's an interesting contrast, isn't there? If you were with us, and I apologize if you weren't, if you were with us uh, in the last four weeks and we, as we looked at the life of Nebuchadnezzar, it's an interesting contrast the way that God deals with him and the way that God deals with Belshazzar. I mean, what kind of man was Nebuchadnezzar? He conquered Israel, exiled her people, enslaved her teenagers into his own civil service, taking them out of their families, He breathed out vicious threats of horrible deaths. He killed whoever he wanted, as Daniel acknowledges. He made a golden image, chapter 3, and commanded everybody to worship it under the threat of dying in the burning, fiery furnace. He ignored God's warnings and dreams in chapters 2 and 4 and disregarded Daniel's counsel to repent until he boasted of the city he built for his own glory. That's Nebuchadnezzar. And we, all, we know almost nothing of Belshazzar, except that he threw a large party and drank wine out of the cups Nebuchadnezzar stole from the temple of Israel. That's about all we know about this guy. There's, there's more in the text, but there's not a lot. Yet Nebuchadnezzar received mercy from God, was humbled at the end of chapter 4, and brought, as we said, to faith and salvation, so that he praised the God of heaven. And he looked forward to the coming of the true king of kings, Jesus. While Belshazzar received judgment from God and is killed and is wiped off the map. With Nebuchadnezzar, God was patient, long-suffering, He brings a lofty man low and then lifts him up. With Belshazzar, he's just brought low. And if you are Belshazzar, put yourselves in his shoes for a second. He might be tempted to think that the God of Israel is an unjust God. But he isn't. And I want to highlight two reasons for that. In the first place, the mercy Nebuchadnezzar got, the mercy anyone ever gets, isn't deserved. It's undeserved. That's part of the meaning of it. That God had mercy on Nebuchadnezzar, did no injustice to Belshazzar. The most Belshazzar could complain about is that God was too kind to Nebuchadnezzar when Neb didn't deserve it. Not that God was unjust to himself. But the second reason is this. The Bible here goes out of its way to show you that Belshazzar earned everything he got. The story is told in such a way as to pile up the reasons he was judged. In fact, Daniel stands here as a prosecuting attorney reading the indictment and the list of charges and and pronouncing the sentence. See, what the Bible is doing here is is it is trying to help you see that he gets what he deserves so that you're not thinking hard thoughts about God when he brings the hammer on Belshazzar. So that what you see God do, you know is right. There's nothing wrong in what he's doing. That's really important. So what is it Belshazzar did here to merit judgment? 
Well, let me highlight a number of things. Number one, he was foolishly arrogant. He thought Babylon was unconquerable. And there was a day when it was. It was well protected, as we described previously, by massive walls. Chariots could circle the city on top of those walls. It had storehouses of food inside it to last for years. So under normal siege conditions, you'd outlast anybody trying to attack you. It was a rich, glorious, and well-protected city. And here he is thinking he's secure and invulnerable. On the very night the Persian army is camped outside, he throws a party, invites all the noblemen, and it's not, let's eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. No, it's, it's we're untouchable. Let's party. We're secure in ourselves. No one can take us down. And with that attitude, he put the lives of the entire nation under him at risk. He was foolishly arrogant. But he wasn't just arrogant in his misrule. He was blasphemous. Did you catch that part where he calls out after he sips the wine in the first six verses, then he calls out for the, the temple goblets of the God of Israel, Yahweh, to be brought so that they could drink out of those goblets. You can almost hear him calling to the stewards, get those Jewish holy cups out here. And we'll drink a toast to these Jewish parasites among us. Let's raise a glass of the God of Israel and drink it in praise to the God of stone, gold, silver and wood there was contempt on his part for God's stuff which ought to be understood as contempt for God himself like perhaps if you've ever been robbed had things stolen from you you understand that it's not just about the junk that you are assaulted and offended well God's stuff was holy to him set apart for him It was not to be used for these purposes, and Belshazzar knew that. He's mocking. And he's mocking as well one of the true prophets of God here. Think of how he treats Daniel. When the queen mother finally gets Daniel in the room, Belshazzar doesn't honor him as the prophet of the Most High God and the godly and influential advisor that he was to Nebuchadnezzar. Oh, he picks up the language of the queen mother. I hear that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and that you can do these things. But he is desperate to get somebody to interpret the thing. But can't you just hear him uh, in in his tone of voice? Aren't you you one of those those Jewish slaves Nebuchadnezzar exiled into our kingdom? Aren't you one of the slaves around here? You're not a Chaldean, are you? You can almost hear the Lord's chuckling at his mockery of Daniel but as he does so verse um, verse 5 immediately the fingers of a human hand appear and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand so that it was visible to the king it etched four words mene mene tekel parson we'll come back to those and and it was so terrifying to the king that the color drains from his probably bright red cheeks filled with wine as he is. He gets pale, he gets sick. His knees knock together and his his lower limbs loosen, which is 
uh, as those who know say, is really just a polite way of saying he lost his bowels. He wet his pants. And he calls for his pagan counselors to explain it, but they can't. They become very disturbed. And right on cue walks in the queen mother. Now, this is not, I say, the queen. It's not his wife because it's already said his wives and concubines were with him. Uh, But who this is, we're not entirely sure. It could be uh, his own mother. It could even be perhaps the widow of Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel, after all, is still alive. She's wise. She doesn't attend the feast. She knew not to be there. She's brave. She walks right in and tells it like it is. She's knowledgeable about Daniel and appreciates Daniel's gifts. Maybe she had even seen his ministry to Nebuchadnezzar with her own eyes. But whoever she is, she knows Daniel. He would have been about 80 years old by this time. And she still thinks highly of him. She remembers that, depending upon how you translate it, either the spirit of the holy gods or it can be the spirit of the holy God. It's hard to say if she has pagan ideas or biblical ideas here. But she remembers that he's filled with this. And she calls him Daniel. She calls him by his Jewish name out of respect, though she mentions that he'd been renamed Belteshazzar by Nebuchadnezzar. And so she says to King Belshazzar, in the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And your father, your father the king, made him chief. He made him the head of the whole thing. And so Daniel is brought in, and what does he do? Verses 17 through 22. He, he gets up, and after telling the king, I don't want your junk. I don't want to be honored by you. I don't want to be associated with you, basically. I don't, I don't want to serve you as third in command in your kingdom, but I, I won't take money to give you what God says, but I'll tell it to you what it says. But before he ever gets to the interpretation, he reads the indictment against him. The Most High God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. He reads him the history of his people. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, God brought him down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. Until when? Until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And then he turns to him and says, And you, his son, his descendant, you have not humbled your heart. Though you knew all this, he says, but you've lifted up your heart and yourself against the Lord of heaven. But the God in whose hand is your breath and whose ways are all yours, you have not honored. Daniel indicts the king for his willful ignorance. He knew about Nebuchadnezzar. He knew about what God had done. But he ignored it all. He turned a blind eye to it. Like so many who know the true story of Christmas and Easter, but who celebrate only Christmas canes and Easter bunnies. And Daniel says, you thought you could defy the God whom even Nebuchadnezzar could not defy? You thought you could spit in the face of God who holds your life in his hands? Don't you know that he gives you your very breath? You can almost hear him him preaching like Paul in Acts chapter 17 when he says to the Greeks that, that in God you live and move and have your being. 
that any moment he can take away your life from you. He gave it to you. He sustains you. And then he accuses him not only of willful ignorance, he accuses him of ingratitude. This God, he says, who made you king of Babylon, you have not honored. What thanklessness you have. Foolish arrogance, blasphemy, mockery, contempt, willful ignorance, ingratitude. This is some of the indictment. And for this he is justly condemned sentenced and executed. So I want you to see that, friends. God never does anything unjust. It is always deserved when you get judgment. But the final thing I want you to see is that this judgment was decisive. After refusing the king's honor, Daniel interprets the writing. What do these four words mean? Mene, it means Numbered. The, the words correspond to the names numbered, numbered, weighed, and divided. Many means God has numbered the days of your reign, brought them to an end. God has said to you, enough is enough. My patience is run out and you are done. And Tekel, you have been weighed in the scales and found wanting. I have examined your life. I have watched every action heard every word, known every secret thought, your secret sins and your open sins, your past life and your present life. And it does not satisfy my standards. You are light on goodness and you are heavy on evil. And the, tail, the, the, the scale is not tipped in your favor. And Perez, the single... Uh, Perez is the single, if you're wondering in your Bible, it's the single of Parson. The word written was Parson. Daniel interprets it as the single. It means divided. It's a unit of measurement. It's a, it's a half of a unit. It's a, div- a division. It's, it means your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. And the, the word uh, Perez, the singular, sounds like the word for Persia. He's both telling him your kingdom's divided And he's telling them, of course, probably no surprise who it is that's going to get it. And so it happened. That very night, the story ends. Darius the Mede attacked Babylon. Ancient historians, multiple, record this event for us. The troops couldn't get in over those uh, impenetrable walls. So they actually diverted the Euphrates River that went down through the middle of the city uh, and uh, sent commandos in. Uh, to wade into the open portals uh, there. And that very night, Belshazzar was killed because God did exactly what God said he would do. And so to conclude, let us all be warned. We are all accountable to God. It is only a matter of time for each of us when one day we will stand before the throne of God and give an account For every secret thought, for every evil deed, for every careless word, for every ingratitude and willful ignorance and blind eye we turn to his truth as well as the arrogance of building our own kingdom and throwing it in the face of the king of kings. And when he weighs us on the scales of his balance... It will not weigh in our favor. 
We will not measure up to perfection. We lack the perfect righteousness we need to stand in the presence of a perfectly righteous God. What will we say then? What will you say? Paul says in Romans 3 that every mouth will be shut. You will have nothing to say in your own defense. It will seem absurd on your part to offer a defense. And so every mouth will be shut. For God's word is true, Paul says in Romans 3. As he quotes the Old Testament, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That is what we are in our natural condition. Unless God has mercy on our souls and we are changed and saved. Unless we receive the mercy that is offered in Christ. For there is a righteousness from God that comes not by works of the law, not by trying to do more and better, but that comes as a free gift of righteousness to all who believe in Jesus. It is the righteousness of Christ and he is weighty enough before the throne of God in the good direction to be all the righteousness you ever need to stand right on the scales of God's justice and before the face of your God. And this is why in Romans chapter 8, Paul gets to the glorious culmination of his argument in Romans 8 with all these grand rhetorical questions where he says, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Answer, rhetorically, the question is stated, but the answer is, No one, not God himself, because he answers it. It's God who justifies you. He pardons and accepts you. Who can bring a charge against you? Then he goes on. Who is to condemn? Answer, no one. Certainly not Christ, for he goes on to say, who's to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. He's at the right hand of God, interceding for us. Christ will not condemn you. Who then, he goes on to ask, shall separate us from the love of God in Christ? Answer, no one and nothing ever. This is the mercy that we receive. And it's for all who trust in Jesus. May he be your savior. Let's pray. Be our savior, good Lord Jesus. And help us to know the joy of being right with God because of your good works for us. And then make us more like yourself, we pray. We would long to be righteous. We long to be holy. We long to love what you love and hate what you hate. We long to do what you command and forgive us when we don't even long for that and give us that heart. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together and sing the first three stanzas of O Come, O Come, Emmanuel.